I feel like I was lied to about the nature of reality. I feel like I was indoctrinated with this sort of set of beliefs, and I feel betrayed by it. And the, the response of, of some of these individuals was like, well, good, I'm glad you were. I felt a lot of anger about that. We aspire to become awakened beings, to live in harmony with the truth of life. From Vast Noodle Media, I'm Trent Bell. This is Knowing and Believing, a podcast about how we believe. Welcome back to Knowing and Believing. I am your host, and uh, we're back with Taylor Lang. And in the previous episode, if you want to go back and watch it, if you haven't, we we heard Taylor's uh, deconstruction journey Mm -hmm. uh, that ended it at... Where we left it, it ended at a very dark place uh, for him. He's in a good place now. He's here with us. Um, but now we're going back and reviewing the story and going to look at it through more of a uh, scientific uh, evolutionary theory and everything else approach. I think we should start out with um, we've got eight different terms here that pack a lot of meaning and, or a lot of explanation in, into each term. Okay. And it's odd to me to learn these type of terms. Yep. Makes me understand things so much more and identify them. Yep. And be able to put them in a place of understanding, oddly, and, and move on for some reason. It's, it's weird. But the, again, kind of some of these go back to that hidden brain episode, Creating God. Yep. That when I heard him, I was like, oh, my goodness, there it is. And kind of like the experience you had with um, the rabbi sharing his speech and then coming up short on some answers. It was very uh, detrimental. To, or it, was, it was very eye-opening, but not comfortable for a long time for you. Right. Uh, hearing some of these terms did the same thing. They, they put words to an itch that I had mentally had for a long time. Gotcha. And it's like, oh, okay, you know. Um, so a couple of these, the first four, I think, are words that you had brought to the table okay. that, uh, that I'll let you take. Uh, the first one is multi-level selection theory. <laughs> so multi-level selection theory um, is, is kind of a fancy word for uh, uh, usually when you say it you're really talking about something called group selection. Okay. And so breaking down, um, if, you, if you break down the biological hierarchy, what we call the biological hierarchy, it's all the different levels that life exists at. So you have the genes. Okay. You know, genes are kind of, you know, modern biogenesis or the study of how life began. Um, modern theories uh, that I think have most clout uh, say that it all started with a series of self-sustaining chemical reactions that kind of look something like genes. So genes are competing with other genes to be in a genome and have the ability to reproduce. And those genes produce cells. Um, and those cells are competing for resources. And so genes are competing at the gene level. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's a very, it's, it's kind of difficult to talk about in, in 
conceptual everyday language, but it's it's the way we the way we view it is that a gene is trying to you know any particular slice of DNA is attempting to get in the genetic code and be replicated, no wow. matter what. It, yeah. So that's it's what's called the gene's eye view of evolution. It's that genes are just trying to be. They're in the just general trying to get population. on the bus. And exactly. Like there's other genes in there. Like no, right. get off the bus. Yeah. Wow. So then you have the cells that these genes produce. Yep. Um, and we also have the individuals that these cells make up. You know, right. if you're a multicellular organism like mm-hmm. we are, and also um, or tapeworms. Ev- uh, yep. And also, um, evolution occurs at the level of groups of individuals. Right. So you have, uh, in any sort of social species, particularly humans, this shows up pretty well, uh, but uh, you, can, you can look at how evolution is moving at the level of the individual and at the level between groups, and you can parse out which kind of evolutionary pressures are, uh, are driving the total genetic makeup of the population. Hmm. So... Um, so, in, in you know, groups of humans, uh, a good example is a group, uh, two or three groups of humans are trying to compete for uh, some sort of resource. And watering hole. Watering hole is a great example. And these groups, um, you know, if you have one or two groups that really see themselves as a functional whole, they see each other as you know even if they're not genetically related they see themselves as, as brothers and sisters and they have uh you know they they they're they're patriotic they're cooperative and they function very well as a as a, as a whole and they're competing against a group that really everyone's all out for themselves right um and doesn't really care about anybody else uh the group that's cooperative is going to succeed Right. Over the group that's not cooperative. So Sapien addresses, the, this book, Sapien addresses this, and the the idea of story or narrative or vision is one of the developments that had made Sapiens specifically rise to the top. Yep. Is is his argument, or, you know, that's a, that's a yeah, pretty that's broad a, argument that he put in a book. Yep, that's a common, that's a common um, thread right. amongst any sort of uh, cultural evolutionary... And so the the odd thing for me is that I do not function in group settings. So I'm this like genetic abnormality or like, how do I fit in? You know, it, it's weird to think that a tribe of Trents back whenever fighting right. over a watering hole, you know, I would have just snuck in when no one was looking and gotten the water I needed and snuck out by myself. Yeah, it's what you we know, call but, it, yeah. But the, the tribes that succeed and proliferate, you know, they, they do it as a tribe and a group and they have a common vision and they work together. And I'm like, eh, I don't want to work with you guys. But right. yet those, those genes of, you know, millennia have snuck through and created the guy who doesn't like to play basketball or go to church or, you know, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. We have a, we have a large, you know, there's a large human distribution of, of uh, or there's a large distribution of uh, personality tape, uh, 
personality types and personality traits uh, right. that emerge. Um, and uh, what what you referred to as going in and stealing the the water, that's referred to in the literature as the free rider problem, where you have an I'm, individual who's rider, who's yeah. benefiting from. I call it fence rider. I'm the, a fence rider. <laughs> is the uh, you're you're benefiting from the group's collective effort while not really contributing much to it. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's called, um, in one of David's books and, and really in many subsequent books, this is called the fundamental issue of social life. Right. How can, how can cooperation evolve and cooperative and pro-social tendencies evolve when the incentive to cheat and free ride is so great so multi-level selection and group theory or group selection theory is um, is one of the ways in which we can explain the emergence and evolution of cooperative behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and this has been observed experimentally in, um, you know, cooperation can kind of evolve four ways via group selection, mm-hmm. uh, via, um, a a special form of group selection called kin selection where you are cooperative towards members of your genetic kin. Um, and this is kind of a gene, this, this goes back to the genes eye view of, Mm. of evolutionary theory where, uh, you know, let's say you and I are brothers and we both have kids. Well, those kids have approximately 25% of our, each of our DNA as well. And so in helping, like if I'm going to help you raise a kid that you might not otherwise be able to raise on your own, then right. I am still helping to propagate my genes. Ah, gotcha. And so I'm cooperating yeah. with you and I'm cooperating with your children and thus a cooperative behavior is evolving in order to advance your, your own specific sure. lineage. Um, you can do it through um, uh, reciprocity. So I scratch your back, you scratch mine. Right. And it, Generally, you know, if you start with, uh, if you start out with a strategy in any sort of uh, conundrum, uh, cooperating, and then just do whatever the other person does, um, in in uh, computer game ser- or game theoretic situations, uh, reciprocity always wins out, and since reciprocators when reciprocators cooperate with other reciprocators, they're cooperating right. since they both start out with cooperation and their average payouts across multiple, um, multiple games tends to be higher on average, uh, than, than groups, right. uh, like, you know, dyadic groups. And these are, these are games. That and and religion dyads. encourages that. Yeah. And cooperation so, to a large degree. Yeah, yeah. So, so religion, is an example of the fourth, um, the fourth way cooperation can be sustained and evolve, and that's uh, this is pretty much just exclusive to humans um, because of the way we we think with symbols and because we have culture. Uh, we evolve institutions that um, you know kind of create. Uh, delineate barriers between who's in the group and who's outside of the group Mm. and how you're supposed to act and how you're supposed to monitor the actions of individuals within your group. And now, I mean like horses and chimpanzees, I know they do stuff like that. They, they, you know, horses will push other horses out that are behaving badly and stuff. Right. 
So that this fourth level of cooperation you're saying humans only do? Yeah. So this is, um, this is a result of us being able to think symbolically and, um, and be able to like actually write down rules. Um, So, so an example of an example of, uh, the example you used with horses is an example of a, uh, a learned behavior that doesn't have any sort of abstract thinking involved involved. Mm-hmm. So you, uh, you know, a, a, a mother, you know, a mare might, might rear her child in a certain way with a certain, uh, way towards cooperating or not. I don't actually know if horses cooperate, uh, that much. <laughs> I, I don't know no. much. I don't know much on, My on wife how does. they're, <laughs> so, um, so that's a, that's a, that's an example of a behavioral inheritance mm-hmm. rather than uh, a symbol inheritance. Okay. So where you have, uh, like, like for example, um, that we know of, horses don't have any sort of example of something like the Bible that has explicit rules about if you do this, then this is going to happen to you, right. and so on and so forth. So that, that religion has often been invoked as a way of institutionalizing cooperation. And, okay. you know, and this fourth level is called what? This group time. selection. But in this group selection, like that we do through, through symbols and stuff, that's called group selection? Right? No, so, um, so group selection just refers to any sort of competition amongst groups of any species. Okay usually or human it's it's um you know the empirical evidence thus far points to it was a it was a major factor in the evolution of culture and the evolution of prosociality in humans mm-hmm. um but it also happens in other species uh water striders i think there are examples of it in like even all the way down at a, at a small like preferential breeding group they separate into preferential breeding groups um some males are kind of docile with their mating and other ones are extremely forceful and the when the docile males are able to separate and the females go towards them um the the aggressive males they try to mate so much that it can decrease the female's ability to um have access to food. Mm. And so those groups tend to die off a little bit more. Um, and the cooperative, the more docile males tend to flourish. And that's an example of group selection and water striders. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So number two, symbolic meaning systems. Yeah. So this is a good, um, this is a good way segue from that. Yeah. Um, It kind of sounds like, number four that you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, so so humans have this uh, other inheritance system that we call culture. And culture is a um is a way of is 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 how is a set of behaviors, ideas, beliefs, axioms that inform how we think about reality and a symbolic meaning system refers to that certain subset of ideas, beliefs, axioms, etc. that, um, that inform how you, how you view the world. So symbolic meaning systems can be religious and often are religious. Many, many symbolic meaning systems are, um, 
our religious Christianity is is just one example, um, and some of them can be secular. Uh, and like Buddhism would be considered secular, right? Um, I, I think a little bit because Buddhism doesn't directly invoke a god. Um, it's it's particularly agnostic about it. You could. It's, humanism it's, would it, be the prime human, example. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. Okay. That would be a, that would be a, a, a pretty good example of right. of a. If it were a hue, Buddhism would be between maybe humanism and yeah. Christianity, or you know whatever, just yeah. as on the spiritual level. Yeah, maybe. yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So that's what a symbolic meaning system is. It's okay. just a way of and and this symbolic meaning system is an inherited quality. Mm. Each individual human does not make this symbolic meaning system yeah in they themselves. add to it they yeah. detract from it they right. refine it and then they pass it on but generally it's inherited from those around you so it's inherited from your right. parents right. it's inherited from the your extended family it's inherited from your church sure um so it's a it's a it's a way of viewing and understanding how reality works right. to motivate your behavior Right, it's a it's a um, it's a it's a materialist name for religion, basically. It's yeah, like, yeah. Oh, that's your what what material or what symbolic meaning system are you part of? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. Oh. <laughs> uh, interesting. Okay. Uh, proximate causation and ultimate causation. Okay, so proximate. I have in my mind like an idea what these mean, but I'm yeah. not sure yet. So proximate causation is like the the way I I like to think of it is what is the immediate thing that's causing a behavior and or causing a trait to be expressed and okay. what is the ultimate like what's the backstory is what ultimate causation is. So the 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 example that I like to use is um I'm a pretty big fan of cookies and cream ice cream. Mm. And when I go to the freezer, pull out the carton and, and scoop a bowl and eat it, I'm doing that. The proximate reason that I'm doing that is because um, it tastes good. it tastes great, and I right. really just want that sugar rush, and I want that hit of dopamine that it's going to give mm. me. I don't, I you know, before I might not know that that's a hit of dopamine, and I right. might not care. But it just feels but good. Subjectively, it's that's amazing. your proximate causation. Yeah, right. The ultimate causation has to do with the composition of the ice cream. Right. The ice cream has a lot of sugar and it has a lot of fat. And we as a species are drawn to foods that have a lot of sugar and a lot of fat because they have a lot of energy. Right. So when our ancestors were, uh, you know, growing up on the plains of Africa, uh, they're looking for honey and they're looking to kill something fat. Right. And that's going to feed you for a while and it's going to sustain right. you for a while. It's going to sustain your brain function. And it's going to sustain all your bodily functions for a while because there's a ton of energy in them. Right. And so over a few million, billion, whatever years, million years, probably, uh, we, you know, like we're reinforced like honey, yep. fat, honey, fat, honey, fat. Yep. And then we perfected it in cookies and cream. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we're like, this is great. I don't have to chase anything. Yes. But then we don't chase anything afterwards, and then we're like, oh. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay, ultimate proxation, or proximate causation, ultimate causation. I got that. Okay, so functional opacity. So functional opacity has, it ties in directly with proximate and ultimate causation. Right. You do something, um, 
and you don't really know why you do it. Right. Like before, before knowing the science behind the the, the drive for sugar and fat. Right. All these I are, knew these are was very, very similar. Yeah, they're thing. they're they're yeah. they're essentially a word for you know. It's kind of like for, a cover term. Yeah. For proximate yeah. and ultimate causation. Yeah. So you're okay. so I didn't you know I until and I don't really think about the ultimate cause behind why I'm eating cookies and cream unless I'm feeling particularly philosophical at the time. Right. I'm just I just want to eat that. And so I'm eating that, I, I'm eating that bowl of ice cream and I don't really know why. The only reason I know why I'm doing it is because it feels great. Mm-hmm. Not really thinking about why it feels great. It feels great because it's hitting our reward right. centers that evolution has primed us to have to seek out sugar and fat. Mm-hmm. See, it, an interesting thing to me is like you think of like, all right, honey and, and fat and the amount of energy it took to get those, you know, back on the plains and it balanced out and then we refine it down to like you know dairy and sugar mm-hmm. we've refined it a little further and like you know all right but just once in a while you know, yeah let's not go overboard where the you know the heroin addict is just like i just want the dopamine <laughs> they're just like straight to dopamine you know it, yeah it's kind of like it's a weird refining process, like in its raw natural state, it had a, a natural balance to it mm. where you had to, you know, you had to fight off the bees and get the stuff and chase down the thing and get the fat. And like that caloric intake in that cycle was appropriate. Right. And now we're at, at our medium here, you know, and we're, we're, uh, you know, consuming cookies and cream with sugar in it. And some of us go way overboard exactly. and, and, you know, and it's funny, like, the same reason that people eat cookies and cream are the same reason that someone would shoot up heroin. It just feels good, you know, essentially. If, if they're talking about the most proximate, like you just, it just feels good. And I, I saw something recently that was like the only reason anyone does anything is because of it boils down to like these two chemicals of dopamine and... Serotonin. Serotonin. Yeah, I forget how it was put there's a together. Couple more, there's a couple more neurotransmitters involved. Oxytocin is one that is oh, yeah. involved yeah. with love and stuff like that. But yeah, it's it's kind of wild how a few chemicals can really motivate really motivate or, the entire experience that yeah. you have. And so functional opacity is basically a way of looking at it, of saying, all right, um, you know, you as a as a heterosexual male, you might see hips and large breasts and say, I just like those. But the the ultimate causation of those, you know, uh, is like the good birthing hips and they can feed the kids is like the kind of deeper level of uh, that. Yeah, kind of on the on the on the surface level that those are, you know, evolutionary psychology behind mating is kind of a is is a, is like a huge part of evolutionary psychology as of right now. Um, and so we're not a hundred percent sure why like we have that's a that's a generally accepted evolutionary theory in mm-hmm. terms of of male mate choice but um you know it's a it's a a whole cacophony of other things right it kind of ties in that I, are both conscious and unconscious right like you can you can put a wooden egg in a robin's nest and paint it a more appealing shade of blue or whatever and mm-hmm. they'll ignore their own egg and they'll go with that right and, and, and I, I remember hearing that on some show and I was just like, that's stupid. 
but then you know like uh how how we do makeup with the red mm-hmm. lips and rouge that's just that is a marker of uh, uh sexual activation and it's just the the you know the red cheeks and the lips being more red it's just blood being activated to those areas and that's we're basically painting the robin shell egg a little bit more blue and we're attracted to that and it's it's weird it's kind of like i always want to hear david attenborough do one of his things but instead of like nature it's like humans <laughs> and it's it's the next thing that or one of the ones here uh cost costly signaling costly signaling yeah to me it's like you know uh a man might think that he's got to go out and get like a couple rings and a really expensive car and really nice clothes to attract a mate right you know and, and on a human level and those things cost him a lot of money right and make it it makes it he has to work more to get those or mm-hmm. take more risks to get those that's definitely a costly signal you yeah. know and but what's the reason he's doing it you know he's like i pull so many chicks with this <laughs> but like for you know it, it's no different than the male peacock having all these feathers for what you yeah know? it's it's, it's a, a similar signal. it's a similar type of signal um i've got to make that that show it's just <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so so with costly signaling it works uh but it, it works with with more than just mating right costly signaling um what i'm doing so the 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 definition of, of a costly signal is a a display to convey convey some sort of message about your intentions, whatever it may be, or abilities. Maybe, yeah, even and, and abilities is because the feathers with a peacock make him that much more visible to tigers or whatever. Right, and harder for him to get away. Right, but gets him a mate. Yes. So <laughs> yeah, so that's uh, and and so the the idea is that it costs you put a lot of energy into it. You, know, right. a, you put a lot of time. You have to, you know, in the case of the peacock, you have to eat a lot to get those those right. feathers nice and fluffed. And for me, I think of you know just kind of examining my own life from this perspective. What I'm doing in getting my PhD, while you know I'm doing it for experience in research and um you know i'm I'm getting an, an education and it's also a job but it's for four to five years of my life that i'm investing for the credential to say that i am an expert in this field right. so i am so i can signal so that when i can say oh my name is dr taylor lang yeah that someone automatically thinks oh wow you know something about something and right. you know a lot more than me about right. that something so it's it's a human level comparison to to peacocks yeah, you know, it, because what is their meaning and what is their purpose? Well, they're doing that with their feathers and everything. Right. And at your level of existence, you're contributing to the meaning of of your value system. Yep. By putting yourself through these very difficult things, very costly things, right. you know, and everything else. But, you know, at, in the end, you know, it, you'll you'll attract someone that's like minded, that appreciates those things. And you'll make more of you guys, and they'll go out into the world and hopefully have similar values and and similar conscientiousness and everything else. And yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I was I always use the example. It's it's interesting. Like my parents, uh, they can spot like, um, you know, it, in 
in using the peacock to PhD comparison, they're mm-hmm. similar, but they're different. <laughs> like my parents could spot like fake hubcaps on a car right? or, you know, fake chrome trim. They'd never do that, but they would put vinyl siding on their house. It's, it's the same thing. <laughs> it's just at a next economic level, right? you know? And I, they sent me to architecture school and I come home and I'm like, what did you guys do? This is plastic embossed wood grain on a, you know. Right. And it's just, it's, it's interesting. And it leads to the next completely made up term of mine that I don't know if it, it applies to anything, but I call it study lose wonder effect. <laughs> okay, let's so, hear it. And we'll have to go back. No, wait. We we skip dual inheritance theory, but we'll go out of that. So the study lose wonder effect, right? Okay. I heard an interview with I think it was Cuba Gooding Jr. and he was talking to the interview interviewer about how it's hard for him to be present in life because as an actor, he's observing the person he's with to study their reactions, emotions, and conveyance of their emotions, so mm-hmm. he can package them into his toolbox and use them later so he's disassociated with human interaction because he's studying it Mm. because i went to architecture school i appreciate way less architecture right like it's it's only now the stuff that's really nice that i look at and i'm like wow that's nice Mm -hmm. right I, I see, you know, any standard, normal, great house that, that 90% of the population would think is great. And I'm like, well, you did this wrong and that wrong. And this is me. Anyone else is going to go to that house and experience wonder. Mm-hmm. And I'm only going to go and see like, you just, yeah, yeah I'm going to complain. Right. Um, what were the other ones? When I, I used to record music just on my laptop and I'd get really involved in trying to figure out and all the sounds and get it all right. And I found that I enjoyed other people's music less or I was less able to be present in that music and be emotionally moved by it because I was listening to it to see how they had recorded it and what they had done and everything else. It distanced me from the experience of it. Right. And what was the other one? Um, well, for me now, religion, like the ultimate meaning is what religion has historically tried to deal with. For me to pull it apart and study it and to really look at it and critique different parts of it, I've lost the wonder of it, right? And I've lost the ability to be um, in awe, you know, yeah. of it anymore. So it's it's a weird it's a weird thing. Like don't, don't study it because then you won't want to worship it anymore. Right. You know? Yeah. I, I know what, you know, I know what you're saying. Um, and it's, it's interesting cause I've, there, there are a couple of, of correlates in my, my own life. Um, similar to that. Um, immediately once I started playing guitar, I started studying other guitar players and seeing how they were writing their music, how they were, um, you know, what they were doing, you know, what, what the lead guitarist was doing. And I was uh, really enamored by it and trying to, trying to look at it, trying to figure out what, uh, you know, what, what's that chord he's playing? What, right. What's that lick he's playing? What's, what's that note? And my Uncle Eddie, 
put it to me this way. It was like music is a, is both a gift and a curse. You're able to create music. You're able to, you know, if you're able to create music, you're able to listen to it on a whole nother level. But at the same time, you're still critiquing a little bit. You're still like, you know, if, if someone's like playing ridiculous guitar and, and trying to pass it off as it's not ridiculous guitar. Right. Um, uh, you know, I, I immediately get disinterested, but at the same time, uh, I've still been able to retain the wonder of the greatest innovators. Hmm. I still get goosebumps listening to Jimi Hendrix play Voodoo Child. Right. Um, and I've been playing guitar for eight years and I still can't lose that or haven't lost that yet. Right. And I have a similar thing with religion with, with Christianity. It's a little bit harder uh, to justify, but in approaching any subject as a student and in a scientific way and trying to figure out, you can lose a little bit of the mystery behind it and a little bit of the awe. But when it comes down to it, I'm always fascinated. I'm never, I'm, I'm never not amazed by a new culture's beliefs. Hmm. I'm never, you know, I, and I always want to, you know, I want to look at the, the, the proximate and ultimate causes behind why they're doing something. Right. But when someone's doing a behavior that I've never seen before <laughs> and doing a practice that I've never be- seen before, I've been like, wow, this is, this is a beautiful thing. Like this is, you know, this this went through however many hundreds or thousands of iterations until this practice got to the, just this point. And hmm. it's just, it's it's fascinating. The, I, I'm fascinated and in awe at the, the breadth and depth that, that culture really reaches in the human experience. See, I think that your perspective coming from evolutionary study allows you to see that as beautiful. Uh, whereas I think from a uh, very literal certainty-based conservative Christian point of view, uh, you you could come at it potentially as like, well, they're just doing it wrong. Yeah, they're just doing it wrong. Yep. We know we have the answers mm-hmm. to everything. Yep, we have the truth. They're just simply wrong. But when you're coming at it from that perspective, your uh, evolutionary study perspective yeah it's far more like whoa look what they're doing how did they get there yeah <laughs> that's yeah, really yeah. interesting mm-hmm. that that's pretty cool um so a uh, dual inheritance theory dual inheritance theory uh, refers to human evolution as we uh we inherit our genes and we inherit our culture right that's pretty much all it means and they and, talk to each other back yeah. and forth and inform and change each other exactly so the main uh, the main tenets of it um uh, a guy named uh, joe henrik heinrich and um richard McElraith wrote a chapter in the oxford handbook of evolutionary psychology and that is not even that's not the only thing they've written they've written many more things um this is just like a niche definition in a, in a handbook, but dual dual inheritance theory basically says we have the cognitive psychological and neurological hardware to inherit, interpret and innovate on culture. Mm -hmm. Culture itself as a system of symbols changes and evolves. Right. And that 
evolution of culture also informs the evolution of the genes of humans. Hmm. And so there we have a couple of different uh, examples of this. And this comes out of, um, I don't know what the exact study is, uh, but um, a good, so a, a recent study came out of a group, uh, a tribe in um, somewhere in Southeast Asia, I think. And this, this culture relies very heavily on diving and uh, for fish. And they did some genetic testing on them. They did some, some gene mapping. And what they found was uh, these people are able to dive at extraordinarily low depths for very long, like seven or eight minutes, I think. I think it's seven or eight minutes. I'm not exactly 100% sure how long it is. But much, much longer than, than, than you or than I your could. standard American. Exactly. <laughs> and what they found was is there was a, there's a mutation in, the, in this particular tribe uh, in that codes for um, something in your spleen that allows them to retain oxygen for longer in their blood and use it a little bit more efficiently. And hmm. so they're not having the reflex of needing to breathe faster the, because you're, the way your breathing works is your, your uh, I believe it's your hypothalamus is, uh, is constantly taking measurements of the oxygen and everything in your blood. Uh. And then it's giving you, and this is a completely unconscious function like you can inf- you can inform you can consciously kind of you know have some influence on how your your breath moves and stuff but it's like almost impossible to stop the breathing reflex right um and in some cases i i believe people have done it but then they pass out and then they breathe again so the reflex is informed by the oxygen concentration in your blood right and so this i i believe the pathway is that oxygen stored in the spleen is being released a little bit slower and still informing the hypothalamus that you're you don't need to breathe yet 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 and you actually don't because you have enough energy in your bloodstream um and then you go back up seven minutes later with a fish so the culture of using fish as a main food source like that cultural inheritance that cultural slash behavioral inheritance of this is how we eat this is how we prepare this food um this is our staple sustenance has led to a genetic alteration now they think that the behavior came first or i mean is it a chicken and egg thing it, did the behavior of fishing come first and like the guys that could or the women whoever was diving that could hold their breath longer got more fish got more ladies produced more babies and they there's just more of those or was it like oh guys look at this we can hold our breath for a long time that's a good point in trying to identify causal evolutionary changes because Mm -hmm. you have to be able to take temporal assessments. Um, but you can also look at other cultures around, around them, um, because there will be a similar genetic lineage and you can look at how they're getting sus, their sustenance. And so you can, you know, if you're looking at genetically similar cultures and this one happens to be, you know, fishing a lot more, um, you know, natural selection would have favored this kind of a trait. Sure. Um, and it's entirely possible that, you know, evolution doesn't, you know, that, that mutation doesn't happen overnight. So it, it keeps progressively getting better. Your spleen gets progressively 
right. better and you're also able to dive longer even at the onset of the the mutation which is then allowing you to dive deeper for longer get more right. fish and so it's just this constant feedback loop so it's it's kind of hard to determine exactly when the practice started and when the mutation occurred but uh they appear to co-evolve in tandem hmm. interesting yeah being a surfer that's put himself in some bad situations i've had to fight against the breathing reflex more than i'd like to sometimes <laughs> right um all right, so those are those are some densely packed uh, terms to then look at uh, academically look at at your story and the things that were going on there. Right. So your your early story has mostly to do with kind of an indoctrination experience, and yeah, and my take on that for me, I see a lot of it like personally. In, in reflecting my story with yours, I see a lot of imprinting more than indoctrination because I think I function less within a group mm -hmm. and more within an immediate family unit, tighter group of friends. So I feel like I was more imprinted with spirituality and I don't know that I can ever know now for sure, is there a God or isn't? Am I just feeling emotions or is there a supernatural tickling my you know whatever you know yeah i, I don't i don't have the uh, i don't have the luxury of of knowing that anymore because i was imprinted with the idea of a god whereas if i were raised atheist and came to this point and then heard about all this and then kind of made a decision to go there it's a different situation yeah you know? so so imprinting and indoctrination are essentially the same process with a little bit of different meaning. Right. So in both cases, uh, you are inheriting a symbolic meaning system. Right. You're, you're, you're inheriting from the church, from your parents, from whoever is involved in the imprinting slash indoctrination process, how to view the world, how to behave in the world, how to be a part of this group, and how to be separate from that group. Indoctrination usually has a connotation, it has like an insidious connotation to it. Yeah. And there's, it's, it's often um, understood as, you know, a, like you're in someone is consciously and intentionally trying to imprint you with a certain meaning system with the with the explicit effect of trying to control you and um and that's usually the connotation that it gets um and when you say the word indoctrination it conjures up those sorts of feelings but you know i see there there are some cases of indoctrination and imprinting where it is absolutely 100% insidious. I'm never going to say that those cases don't exist. But you, any individual who is born into this world is going to get imprinted with its culture's teachings. Imprinted and indoctrinated with exactly. culture, religion, yes. spirituality, whatever. Yeah. Hands down, it's always going to happen. This is a natural process that always happens. We are constantly learning. Right. from those around us and from the symbols that the greater culture teaches. So I had a negative view of indoctrination and this led to another fallout 
with, uh, with some folks in my church later on towards my graduate degree when I started learning about indoctrination and like, especially with, with that insidious connotation. There was a, a little bit of a confrontation in which I was, you know, I, I kind of, you know, I feel like I was lied to about the nature of reality. I feel like I was indoctrinated with this sort of set of beliefs. And I feel like I feel kind of betrayed by it. And the, the response of, of some of these individuals was like, well, well, good. I'm glad you were. And so I had to, I felt a lot of anger about that. But let me try to unpack that interaction psychologically. This is taking my own interpretation of like how I've interactions that I've had in terms of like somebody that I know violating what I violating social norms that I think shouldn't be violated. Mm -hmm. And so when when you take uh, an issue like reproduction, like this or or alcohol or partying or something like that a norm that's generally warned against in mm -hmm. religious settings. The presumed fallout of taking those actions is, is pretty, is pretty set out. Like you are being ensnared by Satan in yeah. this, in this yeah. context and your life is falling out and you are falling out of God's graces. Right. And, to a person who's on that in the on that inside perspective who also deeply cares for the violator of that norm their only response their only reasonable and logical response according to the meaning system that they adhere to is to rebuke them and try to get them to repent right to come back within the lines of the symbolic meaning system yes and adhere to what they think is the ultimate causation. Right. But many, most likely, is proximate causation. Right. So you're, you're thinking that you're, you're being, you know, ultimately, um, you know, premarital sex is warned against. It's, it's not like, some people say it's expressly forbidden. Other people say that's a little bit of gray area. Um, you know, and a lot of the, a lot of theology around it goes around uh, Paul's, uh, professions about um, marriage, um, and I think uh, uh, Jesus's teachings on divorce are are often invoked in this as well. And so uh, those, but those practices have endured either as like they've just kind of come with the culture, or at one point they uh, they actually had some sort of benefit to that culture. Right. Keeping in, keeping like keeping dating within the faith, um, getting married so right. that you're not being super promiscuous. Those have very solid group based adaptive functions. And I think to some degree, uh, obviously, individual, you know, like if you're over promiscuous, disease can spread. Absolutely. More easily. You know, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of merit and a lot of benefit to a lot of the teachings on sex by a lot of the religious institutions, but they strip away, uh, you know, they, they take symbolic meaning system, make it ultimate causation, and it ends there. Yeah. No questioning that, no discussing that. It seems like you could 
even within a church, say, we believe there's a God, and we believe Jesus was his son, and here's some things that he said, and here's what the science says. Yeah. And and they're they're pretty close, guys. <laughs> Be careful. Yeah, so like you know? there's, there's a lot of... Um, so when I look, for example, at the book of Leviticus... Leviticus has a lot. Pretty far from science. (laughs) Yeah, well, so, but it also has, it has, you know, some of those laws have very adaptive functions in in a time when you don't understand germ theory. Right. So don't eat shellfish, don't eat hooved, or don't eat, don't eat animals that have hooves, but don't chew the cud. I think that that's one of the, the kosher prohibitions. You know, restrict dietary consumption that has an adaptive function when you're trying when when you're possibly eating something that's going to make you super sick right. if it's not properly prepared right so either you can have a culture that properly prepares food and there are plenty of cultures around that through forces of cultural evolution have been able to unpack and properly cook food that is otherwise can give you acute cyanide poisoning right. in the case of some um South American tribes, um, or you can just flat out prohibit it, right? And see see someone get d- deathly ill from eating a bad shellfish, and say, you know, in an in an era where you don't understand germ theory, be like, you ate something that was unclean. God doesn't want us to eat these, right? So let's not eat them, right? It gets imprinted, and you're no longer dying of food poisoning. Right. So. In certain contexts, these prohibitions are highly adaptive. And then we start to understand the science a little bit more. Right. Um, now, you know, Jesus kind of threw out the dietary restrictions. Some say he did, some say he didn't. Paul's under the assumption that he did, I think, uh, especially with his professions in Romans. But it's entirely possible that there were safer practices of cooking shellfish. They still don't understand germs, but uh, they're cooking and eating shellfish, and you know, especially with, with, with the Romans, and this is entirely possible, and you see this, they're not, they're not dying of food poisoning, right. so throwing those out, as long as you're adhering to those, those proper cooking practices that you're inheriting from the Roman or the Greek or whatever other cultures around you, um, it's okay to eat shellfish. And then we get to eat oysters, which we all know are delicious. It's really interesting to look at like indoctrination and religion and think about multi-level selection theory, symbolic meaning systems, proximate causation, ultimate causation, the functional opacity of all, the dual inheritance. Like I would think given enough millennia or whatever, that over time that I wonder how genetically we would involve adhering to a judo-christianity lifestyle would the would the age of puberty you know if they're truly adhering to it would would the age of puberty move into like the mid-20s maybe or you know like mm. would stuff like that start to happen does that really apply to um indoctrination and, and imprinting much only in the sense that the indoctrination is a cultural evolutionary process and we are you know, our brains are primed for it. Right. Our brains are primed to be social animals and to look at the the practices of those around us and have an internal bias towards the most successful individuals mm. and uh, and the individuals that our peers think are the most successful right. and those that we um, 
that we also directly observe as having the most skill in some sort of area. So you could, uh, I still, I still have flickers from my fundamentalist days. Um, some of the, some of the, the guys in my youth group have, have since gone on. They're married and have kids now. I don't, uh, I'm doing something else with my life. Um, but you know, there's still, there's still some sort of, you know, deep instinctual drive to be like, man, I should, probably be married and have kids by now but uh but you know at the same time i'm like uh, not really I'm, I'm not entirely sold to it so so like there's um you know there are inborn drives to reproduce and be a part of a group and uh and those are genetic drive genetically driven drives mm-hmm. You know, those are our bro- our brain doesn't come hardwired to do that. It comes pre-wired to do that. Pre-wired to mm. to seek out how the world functions from those around us, and so that's our that's how we that's what we've genetically inherited, and then we inherit this this culture, this cultural meaning system. In my case, from the church, and uh, and and that's the process of of my indoctrination or imprinting. Right. So an interesting thing for me is that I feel like I am genetically not wired to go with religious flow. Like I'm, I disassociate with groups. Mm -hmm. Like if there's a lot of people visiting us, I'll step back. Like my kids have less of a relationship with me when there's a lot of people around. Okay. And genetically... I am primed to question and criticize what the group is doing. Mm-hmm. Like what, what part do I play in evolution, you know, mm-hmm. of evolving thought processes, belief processes and everything else. I think I play a, a valuable part. I'm not saying me specifically, but people like me that are mm-hmm. more looking at a group from the outside yeah. do play a very valuable role in um, gaining that different perspective yep, and start to say, you know, you guys are doing this, but it's contradictory to this or that. And it, and I think that's a valuable part. We honestly. have, yeah. So, uh, the cultural evolutionary process is shaped by innovations mm-hmm. and is shaped by individuals abilities to take their inherited culture, critique it, digest it and change it. Yeah, and so that's the way that variation is introduced into the cultural, yeah. the, the population, and of, I mean the cultural traits. You know, the liturgist podcast and and communities like that, discussions like this mm-hmm. is simply part of that process. Right, it's not a ripping everything apart thing. But what it, what is that? We'll get to that later. But what is that moment when you really? emotionally lose that worldview though you know and mm-hmm. most evolutionary what purpose does that serve is that just like a alarm going off saying you're going way outside the boundaries here you got to get back to you know I, I wonder so emotionally we are uh we're we're wired as social creatures there's been a lot of work done uh in particular with neuroscience to suggest that um, a person's threat sensing mechanism in their brain is um, assuaged by the presence of another person doing some, I believe it was an fMRI study. Um, it was a, a 
gentleman named uh, James Cohen at the University of Virginia who did a brain imaging study on women um, and uh, measured their uh, their neurological baseline using an fMRI machine and uh, said that they were going to subject them to a, a, a slight shock in one of their hands. And he split this group of women up into three different groups. Groups that went through it by themselves, groups that uh, held the hands of a stranger, and groups that held the hands of their husband. And uh, what the fMRI showed was that the neural pathways, the parts of the brain that are responsible for responding to threats, um, were highly activated in anticipation of the shock. But as you moved a step forward to holding the hand of a stranger, the level of neurological activity decreased. Um, and when you held, when the women who were holding the hands of their husbands, their threat level, the, the threat response decreased even more. Hmm. And it was not just physiological, it was also mental. So what they did was they gave surveys to these women about what, uh, you know, how good do you, how good would you rate your marriage? And what they found was, is that women that rated their marriages most strongly had a noticeably had a noticeable difference even within the group of those that were holding their hands with their husbands. Interesting. So your perceptions and and your 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 perceptions of your relationships and your perceptions of reality influence your brain's responses to threats. And this is a part this is a key part of what's called social baseline theory mm. is that we as humans are neurologically wired to be dependent on the group, even if that group is just so small as a family. Right. So, so with your, um, so like we're, we're adapted to really only be in groups of about 50 to 150 people. Right. And then we start building these large scale societies based around agriculture. Um, and based around story to the argument of, yeah, the ability to store, to store, to store, uh, uh, grain or whatever agricultural produce and oh, animal right, husbandry. Right, right, right. Um, and so as we, uh, as we created these societies, um, the small system of symbols that we had already uh, accrued as small groups exploded into larger institutions of, um, of divisions of labor. And this is termed as, uh, you know, once we started doing this, this is, this is called, um, human ultra sociality where we mm. are a group of, of we inhabit a group of species that includes like ourselves and social insect colonies in that we live in huge groups right. and divide labor up. And you know, where, you know, we have, you have farmers and basket weavers and stuff right. in this huge right. in, interconnected, entirely self-sufficient society where one person has their own specific job and then they're trading between mm -hmm. each other. Whereas, uh, you know, um, ants do it a little bit differently. They're not as cognitively complex as we are, obviously. Um, and, uh, but they, they react very, you know, they, they all have complex divisions of labor and they're very equitable. Um, 
They're like little communists, <laughs> actually. Uh, little communists without all the devious intent and power grabbing. Right. So like uh, Edward Wilson, um, a researcher who used to be at Harvard, he famously said that Karl Marx got everything right except he got the species wrong. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. yeah, like communism, socialism is like an, as an ideal is like, yeah, perfect. But it's hard to implement. Capitalism is so it 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 makes for the handicap. It, it makes a better accommodation for the handicap of the true reality of human right. nature. It's interesting. Um so we talked about that. The your your next uh part of your story uh going to college. Mm-hmm. Um talk a little more about the 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 psychology of the function of rebuke and from members leaving the group. I've always wondered a question i've had is what's the ramification of the indoctrination sacred guilt shame system of behavior control yep so i look at um like in it sounds like the denomination that you were part of as well as seventh adventism does not look favorably on uh homosexuality right so what they do is as you know is they you know they pray the gay way or they you know, if you imagine yourself as a gay boy growing up in in that culture, you'd know as soon as you hit puberty that you were gay mm-hmm. because you're like, whoa, I'm attracted to that. But that's not what my church is into. And that's not what my family's into. Your your most immediate, most important relationships, your your little tribe just at its core rejects you. Mm-hmm. And so you feel the guilt, you mm-hmm. feel the shame, uh, you feel the disapproval, you feel the rebuke. But this is like need number one drive, as we know from growing up as males. It's like you can't, you're just exploding in your head, you know? Mm. And imagine that and then combine it with the environments that we grew up in. Yeah, You're just like... Bam, 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 back and forth. Like, yeah. What are you gonna do? Well, you commit suicide eventually. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's that the statistics common, yeah. are crazy high on that. Mm-hmm. Or you take everything at that that culture taught, all the good and all the bad, and you just throw it out, and you start like from ground zero of what do I desire. You know, and and that's why you you have things not not this specifically, but that's why you have things like gay pride parades that, you know, like I'm sick of being told I'm wrong and to be ashamed of this and everything else. I'm out and I'm proud. I'm over this being under your thumb. If we were a society where that was treated as, oh, you're gay. okay, And it had always been that way. There wouldn't be gay pride parades. There would just be Wednesday and like, hey, Tom, whatever. Yeah. You know, it's a it's a psychological reaction to being guilted and shamed. But interestingly, what I found, we did an interview with a guy out in San Francisco that moved there as a pastor to p- pray the gay away. Mm-hmm. And this was a, you know, a practice back in the 90s, I think. And he learned from his experience living amongst these people that he came to, you know, fix that it didn't 
change them at their core. This was an unchangeable thing with them. And that every time someone would feel that they had, you know, prayed the gay away and they could now be heterosexual, it wouldn't last long term. And, and, you know, over time we've realized that this is really just damaging people Hmm. and that what they're really looking for is meaningful relation. Every human is looking for meaningful relationships to be understood, to be loved, just like everyone else. And that these people should not be made to feel ashamed or rebuked in that way that these very conservative religions are. And he found that the people that did cast everything off that went overboard with just like whoever, whenever, all the time, they spent the emotional energy that they had and everything else. They went too far to one extreme and they were living, you know, just a crazy lifestyle that they, he found these people and he found that they still wanted uh, those more meaningful relationships and that they would actually get to the extent of that and say, this just is not, this is not fulfilling me. Mm-hmm. It's the opposite of what I grew up in. And I've acted against that and I've proven I can still survive and not be under your thumb, but I'm not fulfilled. Right. And, and he's out there acting as a Christian minister, but a completely open and accepting congregation and everything else now where he initially went out there to rid uh, you know the whole place of that i guess and he's got just a really really beautiful thing going on there whereas you know primary goal is to 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 seek to help people become whole and have healthy quality lives but not based on any process of shame or guilt or coercion through spiritual ramifications and and everything else. And I found that that whole process and everything else of how psychologically that works to be pretty interesting and to see the beauty that one person was incorrectly driven to try and change people to actually try and heal people through just accepting and loving them. Right. And I found that to be, uh, personally very true in in my own relationships i i would with my kids if i rebuke them and correct them it it doesn't work as well as just simply loving them and encouraging them towards a better end mm-hmm. it, it works quicker yep obviously as a parent there's times when you're gonna have to say you know please stop hitting your brother that's not right you're gonna be in timeout whatever mm-hmm. but overall i think it's uh it's an updated uh version of social cohesion Mm -hmm. that would work better but yeah so um so you had had a thing in here definite prox define proximate and ultimate causations for the reason why behaviors continue to proliferate even when they appear to be psychologically maladapted to the parties involved yeah so um being rebuked by your group sucks. It's no fun. It really Sometimes sucks. it does need to happen, though. I mean, right. if, if Hans is killing Jews by the millions, the group needs to tell Hans that's not acceptable right. and rebuke him. Yeah. So um, so uh, this guy named Christopher Boehm wrote a really interesting book in 2011. It's called Moral Origins, The Evolution of Virtue, Guilt, 
uh, or virtue altruism and shame or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and shame and rebuke are super useful in keeping people in line and adhering to cooperative norms in hunter-gatherer groups. Okay. So he's a, so he's a cultural anthropologist and he works primarily with uh, data sets pertaining to small-scale hunter-gatherer groups. Um, and shame has a... Shame and guilt have a, a bit of a... They have a, a benefit for the group because, you know, on average, if you guilt someone, gossip them about them, something, shame them, they'll change their behavior. You know, on average, that, that will usually happen, especially in a hunter-gatherer setting where being ostracized from the group generally means death. Yeah, that's that's a pretty, um, yeah. Yeah, right. so then you get into settings, uh, but but being guilted and shamed are, are successful group maintaining mechanisms because of the psychological and mental consequences of being ostracized from the group you want to be accepted you want to be you want to be able and and in our evolutionary past being ostracized from the group means you no longer have access to their um you no longer have access to their resources you no longer have access to to the ability to to reproduce um and so you you have almost no choice but to adhere to cultural norms you know and and their their shame and guilt are an inborn mechanism and that allows us to see people who are potentially free riding from the group and correct their behavior now that has highly maladaptive qualities when you are able to uh, when you're when you become a bit more cognitively complex in a in a larger society so and what i mean by that is um when you maintain when when a when a group when when christian groups maintain that cultural artifact of abstinence only and uh and another famous one is no birth control Mm. you can have super maladaptive consequences for certain groups depending on the context um Abstinence only, uh, especially in education systems in the United States when they're taught in schools, generally aren't as effective as uh, talking about the responsibilities behind having sex and uh, approaching sex in a more adult manner and talking to to teenagers and high schoolers about it in an adult manner. Um, But when you have, uh, you know, when you have a view of sex that is... uh, well, you can have a view of sex that's that's spiritual without invoking religion. But when you have this view of sex as like this this sanctioned behavior, like divinely sanctioned behavior between a man and a woman um, as a cultural artifact of a church, uh, it can have, and you spend the, int- and you're not going to like marry someone off when they're like 13 or 14, like when this was, <laughs> like when this is happening. Um and, and the age of, of marriage kind of gets pushed back a little bit. Right. Um, 
you are during a very developmentally important stage of socialization, you're drilling into people's heads that it's not okay to have sex. Right. And then they get to their wedding night and I don't now I don't, you know, this is kind of speculative and I'm not a hundred percent sure on the data of it, but I've heard. So most of my experience comes anecdotally from being in communities that have had bad experiences. And I'm sure for, and it, it's entirely possible that for every one good experience you have, or for every one bad experience someone has in purity culture, they have a hundred more, or there, there, there could be like 10 that have good experiences. Right, right. But you can have individually maladaptive outcomes um, based on purity culture. Uh, and I'm an example of it. So, uh, you know, my views on sex have in have evolved over time and i've had to you know through through therapy and through um you know meaningful relationships uh i've had to work through my own mental hang-ups of feeling guilty hmm. i don't really have that anymore uh i i think i've successfully navigated out of it praise be um yeah, i think <laughs> You You're telling me that main um, sale. So, um, so uh, there's there's times when when guilt and shame are adaptive, and there are times when guilt and shame are not adaptive. It seems like guilt and shame just might be more effective and useful and less damaging in smaller group settings where the consequences are higher. Yeah. So they were very adaptive in those, in those contexts. And, and sometimes though they are, they could still be adaptive. It's hard to, you know, if, um, let's say, let's take a, a present day, um, feminist perspective, uh, with locker room talk. Mm-hmm. Um, let's say, uh, I'm in a locker room with a couple of my guy friends and they start talking about and objectifying a female friend or this girl that they saw in the gym or something like that. Um, it's adaptive for me to shame them for that in, right. in this current culture because that kind of behavior propagates patriarch that, that kind of behavior and that kind of mentality propagates right. patriarchy and it propagates um, male superiority, which is just another word for patriarchy, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and now, interestingly, I mean, like my previous religious culture would have agreed with feminism yes. that, that I should have, you know, said something and, right. and like, guys, you're, this is inappropriate. Right. You know. So, so shame in that circumstance, I think is, is adapted for the ref, for the rest of our culture, because if I'm shaming someone into changing their mentality about, you know, how they think about women, um, then that's, most likely going to result in better outcome because, you know, if, if that person does change their mind due to this shame, which sometimes probably most of the time you would say that doesn't, but, um, uh, you know, in the cases where it does, then that's a new cultural idea. That's a new cultural trait that another person has. And then that person can pass it on and, and on and on and so forth. So we, that's, that's, you know, we can use guilt and shame in, uh, constructive ways to disassemble harmful institutions such as patriarchy. Oh, I see what you're saying. So for me, I mean, shame was effective in getting me to realize that my behavior truly wasn't, uh, where it should be 
as far as my level of selfishness and everything else in my marriage. Right. You know, it was, it was extremely shameful for me to have to hear from my, my wife, like you're, you're overcritical, controlling and selfish. No, I'm not. And then I go and talk to someone else and be like, yeah, you are. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, that, that did right. not feel good. And yeah. I felt that shame and it did make me, you know, like, all right, I've, I've got to take this serious. I've got to, I've got to be honest with myself about, and I've got to talk to Amber and see what, what I'm doing that's uncomfortable for her. And am I truly being overcritical here? Yep. Okay. You know, and it, it, it serves some purpose, I guess. Uh, but when you're associating it with, yeah, I guess it's just a societal thing where you start to set your values and draw your lines. Right. And, and I think that I, I need to clarify a little bit further in what I mean when I say, you know, like I'm not, I would never want to be said yet. I advocate using shame and guilt to do X, right. Y, and Z. Um, you know, there are, you know, those are inborn mechanisms, those are inborn psychological mechanisms that we can take advantage of to point out maladaptive behavior in a certain circumstance, but right. we have to be able to couple that with grace sure. and be able to be sure. like, okay, you're doing something wrong. This should be changed. Stop doing that behavior. Right. Um, you know, and if they, if they make earnest strides to do it, then, you know, we can introduce grace and be like, you you didn't know any better. You know, you were just right. kind of going right. along with your culture. You're, you're doing better now. Yeah. And we're, so we're graduating. here. Exactly. People. We're moving on. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so, so that's, so like the, the rebuke, um, particularly like right before I went to college, just to kind of answer your question a little bit more, mm-hmm. um, is also that rebuke is not necessarily coming from a place of it's not coming consciously. It's not coming from a place of, I want you to get in line. I want you to do things the way I want you to do things. It's, it's more likely that it's, especially with a relationship or a friendship that is very deep, it's coming from a place of genuine concern. Yeah. I mean, the person that rebuked you, believed that they were doing the right thing yeah and and genuinely thought they were helping you get back on track closer to the truth yes but it was for you you had come to a different point of what you believed yep and so therein lies like your friend drew their uh lines in the sand and their i mean the two of you changed essentially And it's it's an inevitable thing that with these type of conservative religions that you you're I mean you're probably almost perceived as a threat after that. And some I've I've definitely felt perceived as a um and this might just be my own internal internalization of um the concepts of of tribalism and how humans interact together. So, um, you know, and and it might be just me reading too far into the behavior of of some people, but I've definitely felt perceived as a threat, much in the way, like, and even internal dialogues with myself and almost like with my younger self, because you're, you're, you're kind of going through 
um, you're going through all of your past beliefs to figure out where you are now and you're having a dialogue with yourself and it's almost like that 16 year old kid who thinks he's going to get married at 23 uh, is just like uh, it's almost like he's looking at me right now with tears in his eyes like that's what I become as we've been bringing up the liturgists um, the one of the new hosts Hillary McBride put out a tweet that really resonated with me and she said have compassion for your younger self because your younger self doesn't know then what you know now Mm -hmm. and so like I've had to be able to be like kid you don't get it right you're you're not gonna get it until you get to be my age right so and just let it easy now you're not that old (laughs) because that makes me I'm older than I was then (laughs) someone along the exact same line someone had said like it's it's you're never going to unknow the things you now know yeah you know it's it's kind of like a cog railway Mm -hmm. and and it's yeah you're never going to be able to go back to that that amount in that position and feel the same awe and wonder and respect again yeah and I, I and I feel that as an adult, that I remember when I was a kid, if we'd travel somewhere, it was just like this. There's new smells, and it was just mm-hmm. like all this stuff, and it's just like <gasps> new experience, you know. And and I find it so much harder to to find that experience now, like to find awe and wonder anymore yeah. these days. And then I look at people that, you know, are just extremely wealthy and get paid to like professional surfers that travel the earth to do their sport. I mean, they go literally around the globe every year to all these different contests. It, I feel like you'd start to feel like the earth was so small eventually (laughs) because you just see it so much and know it all. It would, it would be weird, but yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying about that. And looking back at your younger self where you're at now, but there's that grace that you have to have with yourself and that, maturity that you have to just realize that there's a new there's a new mark and awe for wonder and for me I've just realized that truth is just it's like the horizon mm-hmm. you know and it's always out there and you can explore everything from here to the horizon but as soon as you get to where the horizon was there's all that much more truth in front of you because the horizon's moved and to me, that ultimate truth or absolute truth, you know, is at the horizon. And the only way to get across that horizon is death at this point, you know. Mm. And that that's the ultimate thing. Like, is there anything beyond that horizon? And there's just, I've, I wrote down a thought a long, well, a couple years ago now that um, life is a life is a time of questions and death is a time of answers you know Mm -hmm. as it applies to this yeah that's all you got you know and to me that's the the awe and wonder in it and that's why i look at science now as something that's really interesting but science still is you know an objective fact has so little meaning in it it means exactly what it means that's it but it's a data point that you can put with other data points yep. to make a trajectory towards further meaning and further truth. And then you reach out beyond that line of objectivity and empirical whatever 
towards what you believe. Yeah. You know, and you use science and you use belief is where you place something up there and you use science to get close to it. Mm -hmm. And you eventually maybe are part of pulling that belief across the objective line eventually. Right. Which is pretty cool. And that might take a million years to get some of those beliefs across that objective line. And science is part of that. And you might just have to accept that you're only moving that thing that's a million miles away, one inch closer to that objective empirical line. But, you know, that's just that's just the time scale that we're working with. And to me, considering atheism or the bigness of it all and the vast amount of things that I know now and the depth of, you know, quantum theory and or physics and string theory and all of that is just... It's just mind-blowing how mm -hmm. crazy this universe is and how little we are in it. The, the idea of God is so much bigger than it was before for me. Mm -hmm. Before, I, I, I knew all the answers, or at least I knew where to get all the answers. I just didn't want to have to go memorize them. <laughs> that, that just seemed so yeah. weird, you know? So it's... I guess, I've, I guess what I'm saying is I've, I'm coming to be able to find wonder again within this journey, I guess. Yeah. So, um, one of the many, um, uh, I think the term I'm looking for is, uh, platitudes used is that it's not the destination, it's the journey. Right. So here's a, here's something that's kind of helped me a little bit is, in one of the letters to the Corinthians, Paul writes uh, a definition of faith that I used to adhere to pretty closely, um, or, or rather fit my definition of faith and belief, is that faith is the certainty of, uh, of what we don't know, or something along the Things lines. hoped for. Exactly. And I held on to that definition of faith for a while. And then I became not certain of any of the things, you know, not seen. Um, and so I needed to change my definition of faith. So I, uh, you know... I looked around and I started, I started reading some, uh, you know, I, I got deeper into Buddhist thought and I started reading, um, Alan Watts and Eckhart Tolle and Alan Watts had a really good definition of faith that I think fits my own definition of faith a little bit better now is faith is not certainty because certainty is too limiting. Faith is allowing the universe to be what it is without judging it and basking in its awe and beauty. Right. So we can, so the, the general assumption is uh, the universe is infinitely big and infinitely small. Um, or, or rather some theories allow for, you know, infinity is a concept that we can't even grasp. Infinity is a numeric concept that the mind literally can't wrap itself around. But the numeric idea of infinity is that it's indivisible. You can't divide anything by infinity. And you can't put 
you can't divide anything by infinity without getting zero. So we have an infinite universe, and through science, we're trying to understand how it works. So if you have infinity in the denominator, assuming that the universe is infinite, we're constantly adding things to the numerator of that equation to figure out what the universe actually is. But no matter how much we add to the numerator, it's always going to be zero. Mm. Because infinity creates everything to be nothing, or makes everything nothing. Right. And it's by comparison. And then there's, and then, you know, kind of getting into mathematical concepts, infinity doesn't even have one level. Infinity can be divided up into different sized infinities. Um, <laughs> so where yeah. you Jeez. have, uh, you have, and this is just kind of a tangent, but um, so you have even numbers and you have odd numbers, right? And you have an infinite number of even and odd numbers. They go on. Right. And on and on and on and on. But the number of even and odd numbers combined to make the counting numbers is a larger infinity than the infinity of even numbers. Yeah. And then going another step forward, <laughs> you get into decimals. Right. So the number of decimals of a number can be divided infinitely. Right. And so <laughs> you just have these growing sizes of infinity that, like when I first heard that, that absolutely blew my mind. Right. And there are like, and you can keep going on and on and on. Um, well, actually, I think there's only like five, but infinity itself is a mystery that inspires awe in me because I can't comprehend it. Right. I can't comprehend how there can be multiple sized infinities. To, I got into like, in my very uninformed way, the, the gobstruck wonder of infinity, mm -hmm. like just in the last year. And also kind of the concept of zero. This is very, very weird conversation. <laughs> but it's just the, the absence of anything. Yeah. And how it's almost, it's just impossible. And it's interesting to me how infinity kind of comes back to zero. If you try and understand it, divide it, whatever. Mm -hmm. It is really weird. Um, and that it's interesting to me that the, the initial thing that's made me like keep one little pinky on the edge of the cliff holding on to supernatural belief or potential mm -hmm. for that is just basically zero plus zero equals zero. There's something rather than nothing, you know? And, yeah. and I'm not, I'm not associating that with like Wesleyan, whatever, or, right, right, right. but there's obviously something way beyond us that we just don't understand. And that's, you know, if, if we have to package that into, uh, an idea called God, you know, I'm fine with that. And at some level, I, I wish I had a machine that could just erase the part of my brain that keeps insisting that, no, I have to have literal truth to, you know? <laughs> yeah. Because you, at some point you have to embrace the wonder of 
what you don't know and how inspiring it is. And you have to put, to a degree, um, not a name on it, but you have to in in some way worship it. And that's where we have religions and, and definitions of God and everything else. And it's human nature that distorts them into the things that we all get to the point of wanting to reject. Um, but yeah, that just that idea of zero and zero just always going to equal zero. Right. Where did the laws come from that govern quarks or whatever, just popping in and out of it? I mean, there's, there's freaking laws, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just amazing. Like that's where I'm, I'm drawn towards wonder now and, and worship. And I hope I can get to a point of accepting some type of belief practice or whatever else to, to reconstruct something, which, yeah. which is a good segue for us to uh, end this part of the conversation yep. and return to where we left your story in a very, very sterile, dark, and empty place. Right. Um, so tune back in next week when we see if Taylor brings it back up into cruising altitude, which obviously did because he's here. But <laughs> um, yeah, thanks again for watching and listening. And we will be back next week to talk with Taylor about how he has reconstructed his life and his process of connecting to what's beyond us, believing potentially or not, we'll see. So thanks again.